0: 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. John's whole purpose, remember, in writing this letter is so that we would go deeper with Jesus. We would deepen our relationship with Him. We'd have a foundation to enable us to keep day by day going deeper with Him. And, and so, in chapter 3, John has been explaining to us that Jesus became a man to take away our sins and to destroy the work of the enemy, and as a result, God's children are known, therefore, by their obedience, and the devil's children are known by their disobedience. And so, the close of verse 10, where we left off, he said, one of the commands, the most important of God's commands, is to love one another. So, he said, whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that does not love his brother. So, since this is a really important command, it means it's not just our attitude toward and conduct toward God that matters, our attitude and our conduct toward others is a serious topic as well. So we're going to focus in on this topic of loving one another for for most of the rest of chapter 3. We'll start getting into it this morning. So chapter 3, 1 John, verse 11, we pick it up. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not like Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and, Wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, John says, in verse 11, for this is the message. The four is there because he just mentioned that if you don't love your brother, then you're not of God. You're not born again, he says. So, for this is the message. It's why someone who doesn't love their brother isn't right with God. He says, this is a message we've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. The beginning is the start or the commencement of our salvation. When someone became a Christian back then and said, well, now what do I do? The consistent teaching of the church was, well, you're supposed to love your brothers and sisters in Christ now. That's what you do next. And that should have been one of the first things you learned when you became a believer, when you became a Christian. And, and any church that is even remotely teaching truth is going to tell you that, because loving one another is a core tenet and fundamental teaching of Christianity. It's a, it's a basic value, a basic point of truth of, of how we conduct our lives. And so that's why, because it's a core tenet of our faith, it's a core fundamental teaching of Christianity, that's why John can say in verse 10 that a person whose life is not characterized by loving their brother, they're not born again. Now, I know that's a heavy statement. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, this book, is just like boom, boom, boom. Chapter 3 is one of the heaviest chapters in Scripture, but again, it's a heavy statement, but it's not like any of us here could say, well, I've never heard that command before. This command to love my brothers and sisters in Christ is like out of left field. It's mind-blowing. I, I, I've never thought of that concept before. No one here today is saying, well, if I'd only known I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, that would change everything about how I act. We all know that this is the standard. But what's interesting about this verb, that we should love one another, uh, Greek, the New Testament language, verbs have a mood that you can give to it. English is is not that complex. We don't have a mood we can assign to it. Usually we assign the mood with our tone of voice or our body language or something like that. But the mood for this is a mood that conveys that, well, we should do this, but it's possible that even though we know what to do, (laughs) we might not do what we know. That's why it's translated here that we should love one another. The problem is, is that if we're not careful, we can dismiss what we know to do, either by making excuses for why it's okay not to love a particular person, brother or sister, or we could dismiss this command because we redefine what it means to love someone. I I frequently heard, you know, well, well, I, I don't have to like them to love them. That doesn't make any sense. Like, Jesus isn't looking down going, like, I really dislike Will, but I love him. <laughs> Jesus likes us. I don't know why, but He does. Like, He chooses to like us. So, it's not just, well, you know, I don't have to like them to love them. When the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, we, we begin to develop because Christ is living through us, and He likes that other person. He died for that person. He begins to change our heart toward that other person. Now, the reason that it's important to think about this idea that we sometimes don't do what we know is because, or we change what it means to love someone. This is why John next explains what loving one another means. And so in verse 12, he says, not like Cain. And you you kind of read that and you go, well, duh. I love you, my brother. That's certainly not love. Well, yes, but John has a point for bringing Cain into the picture, He says, not like Cain, and then he explains, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. In other words, Cain was not a believer. Cain was a child of the enemy, living according to his own ideas and his own cravings, like Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 talks about how an unbeliever lives, how we lived before we knew Christ. We were under his influence. We lived according to our own ideas and our own cravings. And under the influence of the enemy, and living according to his own ideas and his own cravings, that led Cain to decide to murder his brother. Now, when it says that he slew his brother here, the word slew here, it's different than just the generic word for killing or murdering someone. The word is used for cutting someone's throat. That's how he killed Abel. He slid his throat. Now, we read this, we think, wow, that's pretty like demonic, like I can see how he's a child of the wicked one here, that he would do that. But John's not saying that the devil made Cain cut his brother's throat. What John is saying is that our enemy, our enemy who's a liar and a murderer, we studied that last couple of weeks, that he's a liar and a murderer, and the works he tries to do in us that Jesus came to destroy is to, he seeks to create us, recreate us or remake us in his own image. What John is saying is that our enemy seeks to drag us down to his level, he works in the life of an unbeliever to remake them as liars and murderers. Murder and lies are the epitome of being in the image of the devil. The way Cain deceived and killed Abel gives us one of the clearest pictures of what it means to be a child of the devil. And so John uses it here to contrast of what it means to love our brother. It's not like Cain. Now it might be tempting to think, "All right, John, I got you. As long as I don't slit their throat, I'm good." But that's not John's point. John wants us to see the mentality behind Cain's actions, the absolute lack of love that had to be in Cain to do such a horrible thing to his brother Abel. John wants us to see the massive difference between someone who's being influenced by the enemy instead of someone who's being, you know, who's following the Lord and being influenced by Him. And so he explains, and why did he kill him? Why did he slit his throat? because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. That word evil is an interesting word. It's not just a generic word for bad. It actually should probably be translated, his own works were pernicious. And when we think of something being pernicious, it it describes something that has a harmful effect, but not in an obvious way and not in an immediate way. If I look and I see something, a chemical or something, and it has the big poison, the crossbones and skull on it and stuff, I'm probably not going to think, oh, I wonder what that tastes like. I'm probably not going to be surprised if I were to ingest it and something negative were to happen. This word describes something that has a harmful effect, but it's in a subtle or a gradual way. What John is saying is that Cain did not wake up one day and and just become a a murderer, all right? Cain didn't just wake up one day and out of the blue decide, you know what? I'm tired of living in his shadow. I'm just going to slit his throat. Cain's evil works started way before he murdered his brother. Let's look back at Genesis chapter 4 because the Bible lists it out really clearly of, that, this is, that there was things going on before this occurred. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. This is after the fall. Adam and Eve are out of the garden. They've had at least two boys. they probably had more kids at this point, but at least these two. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 4 of Genesis, in the process of time... It came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering uh, to the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the first things of his flock and the fat thereof. They both brought offerings. Cain brought fruit of the ground, so vegetables, you know, something that he grew. And then Abel brought of his flocks, and it mentions he brought the fat. He killed the animals, and then from the best slab of meat, he brought to offer it to the Lord. And it tells us that the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, But, verse 5, unto Cain and to his offering, he did not have respect. He didn't accept it. He said, Cain, I'm not going to accept that offering from you. As a result of that, Cain was livid. It says he was wroth. He was angry. He was in a rage, and his countenance fell. Everything about his demeanor, everything about his attitude changed. And the Lord said unto him, when he sees this reaction, he says unto him, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well… If you do the right thing, we'll explain that word in a second in greater detail, but if you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not well, if you're going to keep going down the road of not doing what pleases me, not doing what I I want you to do, well, then sin is already lying at the door, and unto you shall be his desire. And you shall rule over him. It's not like you will, but like you should. Like you need to get, get, get on top of this. You need to rule over yourself and not let yourself go down this road. Otherwise, sin's going to grab a hold of you. This word, if you do well, this phrase, it means if you do the right thing, if you do the beautiful thing, if you do what pleases me, what I say is right, what I say is beautiful, then everything will be fine, Cain. I'm not looking to reject you. I'm not looking to turn you away, but you're not doing it the right way. This doesn't please me, so I can't accept it. Not loving another person doesn't start because I don't like them or because they do something wrong to me or our personalities clash. Not loving another person begins when I say, I refuse to do what pleases you, God. I refuse to do what you say is right in this situation, God. You see, Cain's problem wasn't initially with Abel. It was with God. It was with God's standards and then God warns Cain. He says, If if you don't let me influence you, the enemy's right at your doorstep. He's already ready to try to influence you to make it even worse. And if you don't let me influence you here as I'm speaking to you, the enemy is going to lead you down a road where your problem's going to get worse, where you're going to end up sinning against another person. I don't think any of us would disagree that. Isn't it a beautiful thing when a brother or sister's obedience to God? stirs me up to obey God more. Yeah, that's an awesome thing, but let's be honest. We have a way of making it kind of ugly, don't we? Like, we don't generally react when we see somebody else obeying God more and go, that's awesome, I need to obey God more too. Sometimes we get like this. Well, they must just think they're super spiritual. Oh, how nice, everyone picks them for the spiritual jobs instead of me. How nice God uses them instead of me. When is God going to use me like God uses them? What, what's wrong with me that God's using them but not using me? You see, the whole Cain and Abel situation, we don't know exactly what it is that God commanded them to do when they brought an offering. But Abel obeyed the Lord and Cain didn't. And so when the Lord said, I, I can't receive this, I'm not going to receive this, do the right thing and we can fix this but if not then we're at a we're in an impasse pass here and so i ask you as we begin this whole study which is heavy on loving others loving one another our brothers and sisters in christ what is the habit of your life do you have a habit of getting frustrated with other believers do you have a habit of complaining about other believers Do you have a habit of pulling away from other believers? Do you have a habit of lashing out at other believers? And do you have a habit of excusing your behavior towards other believers by saying, well, I'm an introvert, or no one understands you, or no one recognizes you, or the church hasn't been fair to you? I know some of those things hit buttons because I'm a human being too. Some of us have had those struggles more than others, but most of us have had a struggle at some point with someone else in regards to these things. John's point is everything that started in Cain wasn't something that God taught him. God taught Cain. He said, this is how I want you to live. This is what pleases me. And Cain said, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it this way. And when the Lord came to when the Lord came to deal with him on it, Cain did not respond well, and it caused him to sin against others. When God exposed what was going on in Cain's heart and in Cain's mind, Cain responded. He ended up hurting someone else because he didn't like what God said to him. He didn't allow the Lord to influence him, and that caused him to become jealous of others. John's point is, Jesus is never going to teach us to have that type of reaction internally or externally. Jesus is never going to be the one who's going to come alongside you after, you know, you, you get home from church, you know, maybe your spouse says, how was, who'd you talk to today? And, oh, you know, you talk to so-and-so and, you know, always talking about how God's using them, whatever, you know, and, you know, it was just real discouraging. You know, it's not like Jesus is coming alongside and going, yeah, aren't they a bummer? Like, why doesn't God ever use you? Like, it's not like I haven't given you gifts. Like he's never going to be the one who's going to say, you know what you should do? You should just stop going to church. You know what you should do? You should just never talk to them again. You know what you should do? You should should just let them have it. That's never Jesus working in your life. He doesn't teach us that. Which means that anytime I lower God's standard of what it means to love the believers around me, that's never Jesus' influence. That's never him. That's the enemy's influence. Which is, interestingly enough, precisely why the world doesn't like us. We look out we say, you know, why does the world say negative things about Christians? Well, they're like Cain, they're under the influence of the enemy. No, they, maybe they're not murdering believers. But the idea is they have the same mentality, mindset when God says, hey, this is what we, you should be doing. And then they see our lives and we're doing that. And they're like, oh, they just think they're better than everybody else. Or they think that's the only way to live. Or they think that's why can't I live the way I want to live? You just living makes me feel like my life isn't valuable. Do you understand? That's the enemy's influence. Which is why in verse 13, John says, don't be surprised. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. In fact, literally, it's not, it's not don't be surprised. It's stop being surprised. It's a command, but it's in this idea that the way it's, it's worded is that it's been going on. Like you guys are all bent out of shape and offended because the world hates you. Stop. Stop being surprised. Stop being amazed. And then it has the connotation that now you're afraid. Stop being surprised and amazed and as a result afraid if the world should hate you. Now, this word if here, I've mentioned this before in John, but there's four ways you can do an if-then statement in the New Testament language. And this is the way that you say that you're assuming that this is the reality, that it is pretty for sure going to happen. This is how John assumes things are going to go, that he says, if the world hates you, but I'm pretty sure they're going to hate you. That's what he's saying. Stop being surprised if the world should hate you, and I'm pretty sure they're going to hate you. Now, the word hate, we visited earlier in John, but we'll visit it again. It means to detest someone, to dislike someone strongly with the implication that you have an aversion toward them or a hostility toward them. Dictionaries define the word averse as to have a strong feeling of dislike for someone, a reluctance or lack of enthusiasm for someone. Dictionaries define hostility as being unfriendly towards someone or behaving like a person is an enemy combatant. We were at the Walk for Life yesterday, and, you know, there were some protesters there, and they were they were being fine, you know, they, were, they weren't being rude or anything like that. But, like, as you're walking by, you th- like, you see the signs, you know, and you're just like, man, like, like, that's a weird statement to read. And, and, and if you feel this way, I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm just, it's just a weird thing for me to say, like a sign that says I love abortion. Yes. Like, that's just a very odd sign, like a thought for me to have. Like, there's a lot of things I would say I love, like in the world. Like on a low level, like I, like, I love ice cream. But like on a high level, like, like I, would think, I would think that offering women help and, and other, other options would be definitely something to love and not saying, well, I, lo- I love the death of a, a child in the womb. Like, that's a weird thing to say. So it's weird to see that. But, you know, at the same time, you know, as you're walking around and whatever, like the wrong thing to do would be like, that's stupid. Like, what's wrong with you? Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked that someone's out there because you're saying, well, hey, I, I feel called to participate in this ministry and support them. Like, don't be surprised by that. Don't be shocked by that. That's the reaction we should expect to see odd, weird things like that and as a process that we we should not be hostile toward them even if they're hostile toward us. So as I was walking by, I was like, good morning. Good morning. Because they need to see something different in us. John commands us here, stop being surprised if the world should strongly dislike you if they should lack enthusiasm when they see you. Why aren't you enthusiastic for what I'm doing here? Why aren't you enthusiastic? Because I've become a Christian and I'm following Jesus. Doesn't the world celebrate when someone comes out and says, hey, I've made a change in my life and I want everyone to know. But they're not going to with this. Don't Be surprised and scared and angry if the world should dislike you or lack enthusiasm when they see you or treat you or behave towards you like an enemy, like you're an enemy combatant. John's not bringing up new ideas here. This is not like new revelation. John learned this concept from Jesus, who also said that we should not let such behavior offend us. In John chapter 15, Jesus, the night before he was going to be crucified, John fifteen, eighteen, he said, If the world hate you, well, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you. He says, I even he says, This time when I'm teaching you this, this is not new. I've I've already taught this stuff to you. Remember the word that I said to you, that the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake. Why? Because they don't know Him that sent me. They don't know the Lord. They're not saved. What are you expecting them to do? And so, in John 16, 1, He says, these things I have spoken unto you, What I, the Scriptures I just read, these things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. do you get offended if those outside the church dislike you? I don't understand why, you know, you know, my friends or my coworkers they don't like it when I share my faith. What do you mean you don't understand? The Bible told us that that would happen. Do you get offended if those outside the church dislike you or they lack enthusiasm for you or if they treat you like an enemy combatant? How dare they? What do you mean, how dare they? That's how they treated Jesus. This is the expected result. Like, we have been so blessed and fortunate in a sense in our, in our culture, in our country, that, that we have a lot of freedoms here. That is not the case for most of our brethren in Southeast Asia and the Middle East and Africa. Like, the majority of Christians throughout the world don't experience what we do. They don't even experience the option to go and be able to say, that's wrong. They don't even have a voice. So... When some of these things remotely start to happen in societies that have been more open to the gospel, you know, the rest of our brothers and sisters are going, welcome to the club. This is how we've been living for three centuries, sometimes for, since Jesus came. John commands us to stop being offended because this is the reality of life as a Christian, You're not going to be able to reach the lost if you're offended all the time at how they treat you. Now, I'll be honest with you. I could talk on this topic for weeks and weeks because I think it's one of the largest problems facing the church, at least in the States, today. We are so offended about everything and we're going to let people know. And we're not shining for Jesus when we do that. But if I go down that rabbit hole, I think we're going to miss John's point. Because why does John bring up that the, the world's hatred for believers here? Why does he even bring it up? He brings it up because Cain's attitude and behavior should be expected from those who aren't in Christ. They're to, if they're going to see you obey God, they're not going to be like, oh, I should obey God. Like, that's the expected behavior. They're not going to react that way. But in contrast, while the world, that's normal, Cain's attitude and behavior should never be found in a believer's life. If someone's obeying God, I should never be like, well, you know, I you know, well, guess they just think they're, they're spiritual. That should never be my reaction. And that's what John gets to in verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. The phrase we there, it, it's bad. That's a bad translation. It literally means as for us. Hey, the world, they're like Cain, but us, as for us, we know something different. We have something different. So in contrast to Cain and the world, we know, the word there means to absolutely know, we have full assurance that we have passed from death into life. The word passed there, it means to change from one state to another, to move from one location to another. We know that we have moved from the location of death into the location of life. Why? Because we love the brethren or like most of the verbs in First John, it's a present continual that we're in the habit of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, that that's our habit. You see, a human being can only exist in one of two realms, either the realm of death, which is the biblical definition of death is to be separated from God. You can exist in that realm, or you can exist in the realm of eternal life, which is united with God through Christ. Those are the only two places that a person can exist. You can either be in death or be in life, either separated from God or in union with God through Christ. You see, while eternal life is a quantity of life forever with the Lord, I mean, it is a quantity. It is eternal in that sense. The Bible, though, if we understand eternal life biblically, it's better understood as a quality of life because the lost are going to live forever too. It's a quality of life. It's living, truly living as we were designed to be. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to rip you off, wreck you, take you down. But Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that more abundantly. Life on a different level life as it was truly designed to be, not subject to the enemy, not subject to my flesh, not subject to sin, but filled with his spirit, with him ruling our lives, Jesus living through us. Amen? Someone who is under the influence of the enemy, they're dead in trespasses and sins. They're being ripped off by the enemy and they're headed for destruction. But when I place my trust in Christ, I cross from the realm of death and into the realm of life. I'm no longer separated from God, but now I'm united to God through Jesus' work on the cross. And so when I'm in the habit of that new life, which includes loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, then I can have absolute assurance I have that life, right? Right? Like when I see me loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm growing in that. And and the Lord's teaching me to do that better. Well, man, that's evidence I belong to him. I've got that eternal life. And then I I have assurance of my salvation. When I have that, I can rest in the finished work of Christ, and I can go deeper with Jesus every day. Man, today was a rough day, but I can go boldly before his throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help because, man, I had a rough day. And then His mercies are new every morning. And then we get up and walk again, right? And we keep going deeper with Jesus. John's concept, his point here is that, hey, loving others, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the natural course of growth for a believer. But when we aren't in the habit of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, that should concern us. Because he says, he that does not love his brother abides in death. You're still making your home in death, the realm of death, separated from God. If Jesus finds, and I probably should say when Jesus finds Cain's attitude in our hearts, he begins to work on us, right? Like what he does is he comes alongside. Me and, and Bev had a, a little snit last night, and and I I was like, man, this, that was not how I wanted to end the night. And, I thought, you really blew that, but she blew it worse, so I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> I'm laying there in bed, and then the conviction of the Holy Spirit just falls upon me, literally, you know, just you're like, the Lord's like, well, you're about to teach a message about, like, not being a murderer, not being like Cain, and you are totally murdering your wife in your thoughts right now, like, you're just, not literally, but the idea of just not loving like you're supposed to, not loving like you're supposed to. What do you do about that? Well, I, you know, I, I guess I should apologize. <laughs> yeah, that requires you to open your mouth, Will. Oh, okay. I, like I can't just say I'm sorry to you. No, you need to apologize to the lady. The only thing you see right now is her back. <laughs> and so I, I grabbed her and I said, Hey, I said I'm I'm sorry. You know, I should not have. Reacted like I shouldn't have said those things. Will you please forgive me? When she woke up this morning, you know, she one of the first things she said to him was, "Hey, I'm sorry. How I acted last night. I'm sorry I said that to you." That's the natural course of the way things should go. If you're if you're making your home in life, you have Jesus inside you. You have eternal life inside of you. When Jesus finds Cain's attitude in your heart, He starts working on you. Right. He brings that conviction. He begins to change us so we can love that person like he does. Like, he, he's saying, I'm not mad at them. I, I like them. Like, if you come in, with well, Jesus, they did this, and they said this, and they didn't do this. He's like, yeah, yeah, but I still like them a lot. Oh, and I want you to like them a lot. I don't like them a lot. That's okay. I do, and I'll help you. So yield to me. And so while a believer might struggle as they grow to love a person, they do grow to love that person. Therefore, if I'm claiming to be a believer, but I have a habit of not loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, well then, John says, death is working in you. That's evidence you're not right with God. You might not be a believer. You might need to repent. You might have a hard heart because hatred indicates that we're, we're murderers. Look, look what he says in verse 15. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. Whosoever means everyone. That's the the code word John uses to say no one's exempt from what I'm about to say. No one's exempt from this truth. Everyone, anyone who hates his brother. Again, present, continual. Whosoever's in the habit of hating, doesn't mean you might have struggled at a time, but is in the habit of hating his brother, is presently exists as is a murderer. John doesn't say you're like a murderer. He says you're presently a murderer. Now, that's a pretty radical statement. Some of you might be thinking, I don't think that's correct. I haven't killed anybody. How can John say this? Well, that's also, he's not making this up. He learned it from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, You shall not murder, and whosoever shall murder shall be in danger of the judgment. That's what you've heard taught. You can do anything short of murder, and you're good. Jesus says, but I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother, King James says, without a cause, but without a cause is in none, no, no old manuscripts. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever say to his brother, raka, which is like an insult, he says, you shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire." In other words, your attitudes, wrong attitudes towards your brother or sister, your wrong actions towards a brother and sister, they're serious. Therefore, he says, if you shall bring your gift to the altar, you're coming to worship God, you're bringing an offering to God, and when you get there, you remember that your brother has aught against you, that things aren't right between you and a brother. He says, well, don't keep worshiping, don't keep bringing your, your gift to God. He goes, leave your gift before the altar and then Go back home, go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift. Make things right with them first before you go on in your relationship with the Lord. You and I cannot act like everything's fine between me and God and bring him my worship and bring him my service while at the same time I'm refusing to make things right with a brother or sister in Christ. Well, that's I just don't like them or I'll never we'll never get along. We'll never see eye to eye. I love you, Lord. I lift my hands to heaven, hear my heart surrendered. The Lord's like, go talk to Bob and make that right. Then come sing the song. See, the problem is, we are like, fine, I just won't sing. <laughs> no, no, that, or I won't go to church, you know, because I'm not ready to make it right. No, fix it and then worship God. Fix it and then serve the Lord. And you say, man, will that? that's rough. John's words hit hard. They're meant to hit hard. John echoes Jesus' teaching, though, because he wants us, by the time we finish his letter, to be empowered to go deeper with Jesus. He wants us to experience that joy of knowing Jesus better day by day. But John knows that's never going to happen if we're deceived, if we deceive ourselves. You see, true assurance of salvation, it comes from knowing eternal life is ours, It comes from knowing I am my beloveds and He is mine, and no one who is presently a murderer can make that kind of claim. He says, "You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him." Again, this is something that none of us would debate. Be like, well, you know, he only murdered three people this week. That's better. None of us would say, "Well, that guy's right with the Lord; he's just growing." Someone who presently fits the description of a murderer is not right with God. Now. John, of course, is not referring to someone who committed murder, but is now born again and living with the Lord. Murder is not the unpardonable sin. If that was the case, Paul couldn't be a believer. But all of us know that if if someone's going around murdering other people, they aren't saved. None of us would debate that. And I I think that's John's point. Loving a brother or sister in Christ should never be up for debate. Just like murder would never be up for debate, this should never be up for debate. Hatred should never be an option. Because we, if we're a believer, we possess something supernatural inside of us that makes that kind of contradiction impossible. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you're a believer, you have eternal life abiding in you. In John 10, 27, Jesus says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Isn't that an awesome promise? Like I can know that I know that I know that I'm his, that the enemy can't snatch me out of Jesus' hands, that nobody can snatch me out of Jesus' hands, that I'm secure in Christ, amen? That's an awesome promise. When we can cling to those words that Jesus spoke, absolutely convinced that we're eternally secure in him. But the conditions of the promise is that, well, life only comes from Jesus. That's the only source. And that His sheep who has His life, who have His life, they listen to His voice. They follow Him. And so, while we cling to this beautiful promise, and should, we must never forget the words Jesus spoke right before He said it. In John 10, 26, He said, "'But you do not believe because you're not of My sheep.'" In other words, rejecting Jesus or his teachings, that's the opposite of what a sheep does. That's the opposite of someone, if they have eternal life inside of them, if Jesus has given them eternal life and he's living inside of them, that's the opposite of what that person does. Eternal life does not abide, make its home in someone who isn't a sheep. And so if you're not following Jesus' teachings, you need to ask the question, am I a sheep? And so We'll get into more of, like, practically how to love one another as we move through the rest of these verses, but just from a a principle level, from a concept level this morning, do you see the seriousness of Jesus' command to love one another? Like, is it hitting home? And as you look at your life, are you in the habit of living that command out? Here's the good news. If the answer is yes, yeah, I, I, I struggle sometimes, but that, that's definitely my heart. I, Jesus is teaching me, and I'm growing. Well, if that's the case, then you can have an absolute assurance that you belong to Jesus. Amen? No one's going to pluck you out of His hand. You're safe. You're secure in Him. You don't have to worry about hell or, or judgment or any of those things. You can just rest in the finished work of Christ and go deeper with the Lord. And when you blow it, you get up and you come before His throne of mercy, His throne of grace, I'm sorry, and, and look for, ask Him for mercy and grace to help. Amen. You may say, but Pastor well, what if I struggle? This is a big struggle for me, loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. What do I do? Well, first off, as the team comes up to lead us in songs just before we take the Lord's Supper, first off, I think you need to recognize the seriousness of the command. It is so easy in our culture to write a person off. We don't live in close-knit villages anymore. Like, you could come to church and never interact with a person. If you don't like them, be like, I'll just sit over here. I'll never talk to them. I'll never make eye contact. We don't live in like the idea where you're still going to pass them on the way down the street or while you're mowing the lawn. It's easy to go about our life without interacting with a person I don't like. So take serious Jesus' command. Don't let the culture shape you. If you haven't realized how serious Jesus' command is until today, well, then that's an easy fix. Say, Lord, I, I repent and I recognize this is a big deal. I don't want to struggle with loving my brothers and sisters in Christ anymore. I want to change. I take your command seriously. And then secondly, if this is a struggle for you, then you must make a choice to never lower the standard of what it means to love somebody. If you're consistently lowering that standard towards others, well, that's Jesus is never doing that in your life. That's evidence the enemy is working in your life. Because Jesus' work in our life empowers us to love those who are hard to love. I'm hard to love. But He loves me. He doesn't give up on me. So you're not allowed to either. Keep the bar where Jesus put it. And then commit each day to yielding to Jesus' way of doing things so He can bring you up to His standard. Amen? As we take the Lord's Supper now or prepare to, we're going to sing worship song. We read in Matthew five twenty three and 24 that if you have anger toward a brother or sister, or you've said or done something wrong to a brother or sister, and now you're here to worship the Lord. Jesus said, you need to first go be reconciled and then come and worship. The Lord's Supper is a great place to deal with those issues, to not just go through the motions of worshiping Jesus without examining my heart. I don't have time, we're out of time for me to tell a story, but I had an experience in my own life where me and a roommate were at it, like we weren't talking, both believers weren't talking, and it was at the Lord's Supper where we reconciled, where I got up out of my seat while everyone was singing, and he got up out of his seat, and we went in the back, and we forgave each other, we asked each other to forgive us, and then we sat down together and took the Lord's Supper. We worshiped God together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 through 32, it commands us, let a man examine himself. The Corinthians were being selfish and unkind to one another, mistreating each other at the time when they would have these potlucks and then celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so Paul says, you want to fix this? Then let a man examine himself and then let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And because you haven't discerned the Lord's body, for this cause, many of you are weak and sickly, and some of you even died. Why is it important to examine ourselves? Because if we judge ourselves, Paul says, we should not be judged, but when we're judged, we're chastened, disciplined by the Lord so that we should not be condemned with the world. This is the time to say, Lord, is there... Is there somebody that I'm not loving right now? When we sing now, I would encourage you, ask the Lord to reveal any wrong attitudes or behaviors towards a brother or sister in Christ and then commit to them right then and there to fix it immediately so that when we all celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we can do it in a way that pleases the Lord. Amen? And I will tell you, if that person's here, get up. Go to them and make it right. Apologize. If it's a spouse... You can spare yourself having to get up, but make it right. Make it right, and then worship together. Lord, we give you this time now to worship you, but Lord, first off, we ask that you would show us if there's any attitudes or conduct towards a brother or sister in Christ, Lord, that is displeasing to you. And Lord, we choose this morning to deal with that, Lord, if they're not here, then we choose, as we're going to take the Lord's Supper, that that's going to be kind of our our main task this afternoon, to make a beeline to fix it. Lord, we commit this to you. Reveal to us if anything needs to be fixed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.